Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for March 2008. I'm Eric Martins, Managing Editor for the Journal. I'm joined by our Assistant Managing Editor, Anirban Mahapatra. Welcome, Anirban. Hello, everyone. In this issue, we feature research from the labs of Karsten Schultz, Nathaniel Gray, Charles Schuster, and Lynn Regan. We'll be speaking with Professor Regan later in the podcast, but first we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. In Ask the Expert, Michelle Chang, a researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, will be fielding your questions about using the tools of biology and chemistry. Her research group is currently working on two areas, developing new ways to create biofuels that are renewable sources of energy and investigating how to enzymatically make fluorinated drugs. Submit your questions for her today at www.acschemicalbiology.org. The March issue of ACS Chemical Biology features four exciting research papers and one review. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This month, we meet five young scientists, Aitzibur Korta-Herena, Olivia George, Luke Levis, Alan Piljic, and Karsten Anderson. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We are joined today by Lynn Regan, Professor of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry at Yale University. Her lab has been working on protein structure and function for many years now. In the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology, her lab presents exciting results on a new way to study protein interactions that could have broader applications in cancer biology. Welcome, Lynn. Hello. So let me start off by asking a question I'm sure our listeners are curious to know the answer to. What exactly is a TPR, and what sparked your interest in these domains? Well, the name TPR just stands for tetratrichopeptide repeat, and when the groups first identified it as a sequence motif, the tetratrichopeptide just refers to it being 34 amino acids. And it's quite interesting how I came across it. So I had been working on simple model systems in which to dissect the contributions of different interactions to protein folding and stability. And I'd worked on beta sheet propensities and helix packing for helix bundles. And I was on training leave, taking a sabbatical for a semester at University College London. And Lawrence Pearl and Chris Prodromo were working on HSP90, the chaperone. And they said, Lynn, we think that some of these interacting proteins might be for helix bundle proteins we take a look at the sequences. So they gave me a little piece of paper with some sequences on. And I did. I just glanced at it. I didn't pay too much attention to it. And then about a week later, I went to give a talk at Oxford, and David Barford had just solved the structure of a three-tandem TPR repeat domain. He showed that to me. It was not a four-helix bundle protein. The 34 amino acids of the TPR repeat form a helix-turn-helix, and the way that each repeat is stacked versus the next one suggested, and Barford proposed this, that if you had longer arrays of these TPRs than three, which was in the domain that he had crystallized, you'd get a superhelical structure. And in fact, we and others in later work showed by um, crystallography that that was in fact true. You do get superhelices with these longer arrays. But this sort of sparked my interest because I thought the TPRs would be an excellent system in which to study the stability of repeat proteins. So I could dissect out the contributions to stability, say, of individual helices or helix-turn helices, then superimposed upon that helix-helix interactions between repeats. 
The thing about repeat proteins, TPRs, anchor repeats, leucine rich repeats, is that there aren't any long range interactions. So rather than kind of like the complex array of interactions you see in globular proteins, you really can have this very kind of systematic approach to understanding the rules of how these proteins fold and how you can vary their stability. And a postdoc joined me in my lab and we started working on TPR designs. And, and all I said to you just now proved true that we could, in fact, really engineer with quite high degree of control the folding and stability of these proteins. We can make, say, a 3-TPR unit that has a melting temperature of 40 or 80 or 100 degrees. And now we get to the subject of the paper, which is a 3-TPR unit, which is actually a binding, a peptide binding um, motif. Wow, that's very interesting. So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, I'd like to point out that the protein that your lab designed, uh, which you reported in the current issue of uh, ACS Chemical Biology, this protein actually kills breast cancer cells. Could you please describe how this protein achieves this remarkable feat? With the background I just said about engineering TPR stability and understanding that aspect, we're able to make three TPR units, which is about 100 amino acids, the smallest unit that's a a peptide binding unit with any stability that we would like. And in natural TPR peptide interactions, there are some co-crystal structures of three TPR units with peptide binding bound to them. A couple of interesting examples are the C-terminal tail of HSP90, which binds to a TPR domain called TPR2A, and the C-terminal peptide of HSP70, which binds to a TPR domain called TPR1. Well, in the paper, what we do is we graft the ligand recognition residues from the natural TPR, TPR2A, which binds to the C-terminal peptide, the C-terminus of the chaperone HSP90. The natural function of the TPR2A is to bring 90 and 70 together. There's a protein called HOP that's got two different TPR domains, one that binds to 70, one that binds to 90. And as a protein folds, substrate is passed from 70 to 90 and finishes folding. So serendipitously, it's been found that many overproduced or mutant oncogenic proteins are particularly dependent on HSP90 to fold. And this is exemplified by the breast cancer protein, HER2. It's already been shown that if you inhibit the ATP, A's activity by active site inhibitors such as gildenamycin or 17-AAG, then you get a consequent decrease in HER2 levels and you can kill cancer cells. So our idea was if we design a very stable, very tight binding TPR domain and introduce that into a cell, it can outcompete the natural TPR2A of HOP for binding to HSP90. So 90 won't be able to come into this functional complex with 70, and so its activity will be inhibited. That's what happens. That's how we kill. We inhibit a particular protein-protein interaction by introducing this designed TPR module. And because of that, 90's activity is inhibited, and so it can't fold HER2, HER2 levels drop, and um, proliferation and cell growth is inhibited. So this leads to a very, very interesting question. Do you think it will be possible to design other proteins with new functions using the the, the TPR scaffold? I do, because sequence analysis of natural TPRs suggests that their binding pockets are very versatile. If you think of the work of uh, Wu and Cabot on looking at 
the sequences of antibodies. They identified the antibody recognition regions by looking for hypervariability. And the so-called complementarity determining regions of antibodies were first recognized by that. And if we look at the sequences of natural TPRs, we see that in their binding pockets, certain residues are hypervariable, suggesting that natural ones can bind a variety of different peptide ligands. And so, therefore, by using a combination of design and selection, we do think that we can create these modules with different binding specificities and hence with different activities. What general design principles do you think emerge from the engineered TPR protein uh, that you have described in ACS Chemical Biology that, that, as you mentioned, has enhanced affinity and selectivity? Okay, well, there are a few things. The first is that we can graft binding residues onto different frameworks. So what we did was, in this case, took binding residues from a natural TPR and grafted them onto a um, stable framework, and they're functional in this new context. I think in part because of the very um, regular structure of TPRs and repeat proteins that they were functional in that new environment. And also that is facilitated because when TPRs bind to peptide ligands, there's little or no backbone movement upon binding. And so you can kind of literally think of this idea of grafting new side chains onto a constant backbone. The one thing that we did, we as well, so an additional feature, a new component to the design, in addition to just grafting the binding residues, we will also ch- change the charge on the back face of the protein, so the side of the TPR that's not in direct contact with the ligand. The ligand we're trying to bind is a negatively charged peptide, and so we investigated the effect of changing the charge on the back face of the protein. We showed that if we made that back face much more positive, we could get an even more enhancement of affinity. But we kept the specificity. So presumably what's happening is we're getting specific binding because that's dictated by the direct interaction of side chains of the protein with the peptide and the binding face. And then you can kind of enhance that by changing the charge on the other face. And one thing, this was possible in this design TPR because it was very stable. And so Normally, a protein wouldn't be able to tolerate changing the back face charge from completely negative to neutral to completely positive. But because we're starting off with a very stable module, we can do that. So there there are quite a few features that emerge and that we can use, as you were referring to in the previous question, to design or select for TPRs with different specificities. Now we can take what we've learned from this particular example. It's a very interesting study. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We continue to define chem-bioglossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is fluorophore. A fluorophore is a fluorescent moiety that can consist of disparate chemical structures, including small molecules, proteins, and semiconductor beads. Learn more about the use of fluorophores in chemical biology in Ronald Raines' review in the current issue of our journal. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org. Please send us your comments by clicking on Email the Editor on the homepage of our website.